0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. I knew from experience that if someone sneezed on the east side of town, within a very few minutes, someone on the west side would say, Good bless you, and start preparing a pot of chicken soup. If word got out about the exhumation, half the town would be at the gravesite when we arrived. And this could quickly get out of hand and become a media circus that could jeopardize our case. From Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant. Cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy cozy. Welcome back, murder bookies. I am your host, Jill. Thank you for joining me for episode 67, part two, All Is Not Well, of this special series on two true crime books written by Clay Bryant, Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well. And right off the presses, released in May 2023, the cold case murder of Fred Wilkerson, untangling the Black Widow's web in West Georgia. Cold cases can be frustrating, heartbreaking. And here, thanks to Clay Bryant, we have resolution, answers, and at least the possibility of peace for families. Before we get rolling, a quick shout out to some of my patrons who joined me on Patreon. Thank you, Diana. Danielle, and Patrice. You make this fun for me, and I appreciate the questions and insights. And hello to my UK murder bookies, especially Ian Bitdead. My heart overfloweth with appreciation. So we met Gwendolyn Moore, found curled in a fetal position at the bottom of a well just outside Hogan'sville, Georgia in 1970. Her case went cold the day she died. 32 years later, Investigator Clay Bryant has taken a job with the District Attorney of Coweta, Judicial Circuit of West Georgia, Pete Scandalakis. On day nine, he receives a phone call that changed everything. Larry Arrington, Investigator with the Sheriff's Office of Trope County, called. Larry explained that Leslie Power had called him, inquiring about the death of her great-aunt, Gwendolyn Moore. Larry was unable to find any records, but Miss Moore had been found in a well. Jolted, a shiver ran up Clay's spine as he had been standing there when Gwendolyn Moore was brought up from that well with his dad, then the police chief of Hogansville. Well, I'll be danged, right? Larry faxed over a copy of the death certificate as Clay filled in Larry on everything he knew including his daddy's thoughts that Marshall Moore had murdered his wife. Usually, death certificates are run-of-the-mill documents. The cause of death is described in medical terms, needing a translation into common parlance. But what Clay had before him was far, far from mundane. City County Hospital medical examiner in 1970 was Dr. Joseph Krafka. Described by Clay as eccentric, he earned the nickname the Cadillac kid, as he drove this bright red Cadillac convertible. He was also a thoughtful and gifted pathologist. He made sure that everyone looking at the death certificate knew his professional opinion on the Gwendolyn Moore case. Quote, Manner of death? Homicide. Cause of death? Pulmonary edema due to concussion caused by repeated blows to the head. End quote. Dr. Krafka recorded Gwendolyn's medical records, too noting she had been in the hospital on July 28th after being hit with a bottle, receiving stitches. The husband commented, quote, he'd slapped her around, end quote, on the night of August 3rd, 1970, which translated to him using his fist to beat her about the eyes. Dr. Krafka knew this woman had been beaten to death. Taking steps to ensure anyone inquiring would know what he believed happened, the death certificate had a full autopsy outlined on it. Clay writes that quote As I read the report, I recalled Buddy's full outrage at the indifference showed toward the death of Gwendolyn Moore. Although I had always been aware of the turmoil he experienced, I was beginning to understand why he had felt the way he did. End quote. He spoke with Leslie Power, and she was shocked and she couldn't understand why justice hadn't been done. She provided names and phone numbers for family members. Clay asked himself why her murderer hadn't been brought to justice. He also reminded himself that when an investigator falls into a routine mindset, he's in a rut that renders him or her ineffective. His dad had explained, quote, son, never get to the point in your life as a peace officer that you handcuff yourself with your own intelligence. End quote. Great advice for all of us. In late October 2002, Clay called one of the best investigators he had ever known, Gary Fuller, a retired GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent. Gary was all in. He'd provide support, suggestions, and anything else for justice in this case. Next was Joe Jackson, agent in charge of Region 2, GBI. He asked for any archival information on the case begun by Agent Troy Owens. Jackson had never heard of Agent Owens, but he would get back to Clay, although he didn't have high hopes. October 24th, Clay went to see Kay Mishu, who worked with him at the DA's office. She was in charge of the Trope County archives. She and her staff of Barry Jackson, Lance Jones, and Diana Thompson were tremendous help to Clay, even though historical archives began about 10 years after Gwendolyn's death. Kay did have coroner records, newspaper accounts from the era, and all were meticulously labeled, content listed in a computer database, and they got on it. Clay learned that Gwendolyn's body went straight to the morgue, bypassing the emergency room, so there would be no patient chart, which would have been kept forever. The record of her final trip to the hospital would only be kept in the pathology department which purges its records every 10 years. So Clive feared that this would be a fatal blow to the investigation. Quote, It would take the divine grace of God and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to obtain documentation needed to salvage what corruption and apathy had done to this case. End quote. But thanks to Dr. Krafka, her death certificate did allude to these injuries, and the stitches on that morning on July 28th, 1970, and this would help substantiate that she had experienced domestic violence if a case ever developed. Next step, prepare an affidavit for a search warrant to obtain her treatment records from West Georgia Medical Center. Granted by Judge Quillian Baldwin of the Superior Court of Troop County, these were obtained. Since Clay grew up in the area, he knew which neighbors he was seeking to interview. With the sheriff's archives coming up empty, Clay thought of one person who might be able to assist him. Joyce Bryan, who had been the office secretary for Sheriff Lem Bailey. Having a wealth of knowledge gleaned from longevity, Joyce was working in the sheriff's office still for the current sheriff, Donnie Turner. She recalled the lady in the well saying, quote, I was so mad about the way Bailey handled that case. End quote. She agreed to look. At the West Georgia Medical Center, if anyone could put their hands on documents, it was Elaine Prescott. Calling Pathology, Clay explained the whole story and what he was attempting. And she explained that back in the 70s, the pathology records were destroyed after 10 years, with Clay's heart sinking. But, There was a tiny glimmer of hope rising. Some records had been taken to the old Coleman Library. She would go dig and see if there was anything there. Telling her about Gwendolyn's death certificate, Elaine suggested he meet with Dr. David Martin, head of pathology. Dr. Martin was somewhat surprised by the amount of information on the death certificate. Quote, It's as if Dr. Krafka... Wanted to make a statement that the family or others would be able to access as a matter of public record that could not be altered or tampered with in any way. He was willing to testify if it came to that and suggested that Clay get the state medical examiner's office involved. They handled all forensic autopsies for the local hospital. He reminded Clay, too, that this was an old case and they'd need strong evidence to get it into a courthouse. Next. Contact the family and friends from the list Leslie Power had given him. Pat Terry, Gwendolyn's older sister, called Miss Pat by Clay, made her feeling about the investigation into her sister's death very clear. She held no hope of justice. She shared stories of Marshall and Gwendolyn, that it was abusive from the beginning, the vivid, disturbing pictures of chronic abuse 15 years in duration, which opened Clay's eyes further. Between smiles and tears, she shared that everyone in the family believed Marshall killed her, and had continually called Trope County Sheriff Department, but Marshall was connected and got away with it. Miss Pat's raw emotion confirmed how devastating Gwendolyn's murder had been to her. Quote, We were just poor, common folks, and we didn't know anything about most things like this. And we were at the mercy of the system. Everyone in our family was scared of Marshall. He was such a mean man. Human beings alter their perceptions when they feel threatened, and defense mechanisms can kick in. These diffuse the anxiety that we feel from unwanted stimuli, persons, events, or factors. One of these commonly utilized is rationalization, the ability of a person to justify mistakes, thereby allowing him to shed guilt he should rightfully bear for himself. But psychopaths, sociopaths, serial killers, sex offenders, domestic batterers, their use of rationalization is in overdrive. These cowards dodge their responsibility for using this mental magic, and we see this in this case. Clay Bryant writes, quote, Whether out of fear, frustration, or indifference, people who could have made a difference stood by and allowed the tragic chain of events to continue. And progress into one of the greatest failures imaginable, not only in the criminal justice system, but in society as a whole. End quote. Truthful, powerful condemnation. Kite does not accept the excuse offered quote, It was a different time with different values, and that all these years later, the rehashing of this case would be an ill wind that would blow no good. The simple truth is this. It was a monumental wrong in 1970, and it remains a monumental wrong today. End quote. Bravo. How do I know this is absolutely the truth? His father, Buddy Bryant. He knew in 1970 that this was a horrific miscarriage of justice. It haunted him. While I believe Buddy Bryant is a decent, God-fearing man, I do not believe he is an oddity in his time. This is an obscene thing that was allowed to play forth to its lethal conclusion. And Clay explains that with the help of good people who reject rationalizing this way, it became possible to see the truth and set the record straight. I explain all this because Clay Bryant went to interview Marshall Moore, still alive in 2002. His statement, Quote, Clay, I don't want to talk about my children's mother. She was just a drunk, end quote. It is a clear case of the perpetrator of the crime adding wrongdoing and justifying his actions. The children of the neighboring Turner family were all home that night that a severely battered Gwen came to their back door begging for help. Ronnie Turner said he had been involuntarily replaying it in his mind for thirty two years. Wishing he could forget. Fifteen years old at the time, he was Alan Moore's good buddy. Living seventy five feet or twenty three meters away from the Moores for three years, he had seen the devastatingly cruel abuse inflicted on Mrs. Moore. Debbie Thrower, aged sixteen, brother of Mike, who was fourteen, and younger sisters Jennifer and Angel, saw it all. Debbie let Gwendolyn hide in the crawl space, just as her mother had done previously. Debbie's boyfriend, Randall Williamson, was also there, witnessing the terrible sight. He went under the house to check on Gwendolyn around 10 p.m., finding her, quote, propped up on the heater. Her face was covered with blood and one eye was swelled shut. The other was swollen nearly as bad. There was a cut on her head that was bleeding badly, and her lips were twice the size they should have been and were bleeding too. She told me she had to get help. I told her about an old logging road that would take her through the woods and bring her back out on Mobley Bridge Road, away from the house where Marshall couldn't see her, End quote. Marshall returned from getting the boys from the pool and realized Gwendolyn had recovered enough to flee and grew frantic, not wanting her roaming around the neighborhood looking bloody and battered. Shouting, he ordered the boys to find her. None admitted to finding her, even Alan, who we know did speak to her for one last time. He had told Marshall he had no luck, with him. Marshall shining a flashlight along the wood line behind the houses. The next morning, there would be a body in the well. Documentation was needed if Clay was going to see Marshall prosecuted. It began with Chris Hosey, the assistant GBI agent in charge of the area, providing welcome news that there was an old case file submitted by one, Agent Troy Owens. Skedaddling up to Greenville to get his hands on that file, Clay wound up reading it in the car rather than waiting to return to his desk in LaGrange. Would any of us do differently? Only four pages in length, one page contained interviews, in the plural, interviews, one page, and Alan's words jumped out at him, quote, Daddy killed my mama and threw her in that well, and if he finds out I'm telling you this, he'll kill me too, end quote. Dated February 7th, 1971, the summary reads, quote, after an intensive investigation, it is the opinion of this investigator that the case should be closed, end quote. Done. Four pages. No autopsy report. All this did was prove the influence of the Trope County machine with officials turning aside rather than doing their jobs. Nevertheless, Clay's boss, Pete Scandalakis, the district attorney, encouraged him to push forward, quote, You know what? Speak to Linda Caldwell, an excellent prosecutor, and keep digging, end quote. Professional, direct, and thus rather intimidating, Linda Caldwell might give a good number of folks pause. Contacting her, Clay would also learn she was dedicated to the pursuit of justice. A super detailed death certificate is not an autopsy report, which would enhance the case immeasurably. Dr. Krafka had passed away years before, so this was going to take some Herculean efforts to breed life back into this case. March 2003, Clay reached out to Georgia's chief medical examiner, a leading forensic pathologist with an exceptional reputation across the country, Dr. Chris Sperry. His assistant, Mrs. Jimmy Bailey, who, quote, protects him like a lioness while keeping him on task, end quote, listened to Clay's story and scheduled a meeting. Waiting for the appointment, Clay described himself as nervous, like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. (laughs) I love these descriptors. They are all over the books. After sleepless nights between November 1st and the 18th, the appointed hour at the DBI office in Atlanta came. As time went by at a snail's pace, a nondescript man with large wire rimmed glasses, tattoos on each arm, wearing a University of Georgia football jersey and jeans, introduced himself as Dr. Sperry. Surprised, Clay realized he was not a man who sought to make a big impression. Settling into his office, he began looking at the file and zeroed in on the death certificate and statements by Ronnie Turner and Alan Moore. Dr. Sperry asked and answered every question Clay had prepared in advance before he asked it. He was confident that, quote, whatever his decision was, win, lose, or draw, Dr. Sperry would render his decision solely based on the merits of the evidence, end quote. Impressed by the strong message Dr. Krafka was sending, he urged Clay to try to locate a pathology report, although Dr. Sperry could testify that the injuries described in the death certificate would be consistent with statements of the witnesses, and this would support that it was a homicide. Elated, Clay felt that one hurdle was moved out of the way, and he could see a light at the end of the tunnel, never realizing that light was a train. Linda Caldwell finished reading the case file, shocked at the brutality, and if the case continued to come together, she would convict him, tears springing into the seasoned professional's eyes. They were on the same page. Clay now met Dawn Pierce, an evidence technician in forensic biology. Chatting about another case entirely, Clay filled her in on this thawing cold case, and Dawn suggested he speak with Diane Ennis, who worked in the lab's record section. That woman worked magic. Caught up to speed, Diane Emmis began a microfilm search using Gwendolyn's name. Nothing. But she didn't give up. Exploring the old GPI case file with the crime lab case number, racing for disappointment, both their eyes lit up when there on microfiche was Dr. Krafka's original autopsy report from 1970. This was a major coup. Reading it, it seemed to match the information from the death certificate. It also addressed the absence of toxic gases in the well and had toxicology results. All of this supported the theory that there was a cover-up. It wasn't an accident these reports were left out of the GBI case file. Walking on cloud nine, Clay delivered the report to Mrs. Bailey to pass on to Dr. Sperry. Feeling, quote, bulletproof, almost intoxicated with positive results, end quote, Clay walked with a swagger. It was looking so good, justice was coming. He recalled his dad had told him, quote, just remember, boy, in life, whatever be your goal, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole, end quote. (laughs) Yes, yes, donuts, I love it. In March, Linda met with Dr. Sperry, taking a step back when he said, Houston, we have a problem. Uh oh. The death certificate showed the pathological conclusions of Dr. Krafka, and Dr. Sperry could have supported those conclusions. However, the items that were missing from the forensic findings were those items on which Dr. Krafka based his deductions. In the autopsy report, Dr. Krafka indicated the presence of petechial hemorrhage in the brain, minuscule hemorrhages caused by a lack of oxygen during metabolism. In these cases, the telltale small hemorrhages in the eyes and the face that was associated with asphyxia. This is inconsistent with brain injury caused by battery to the head. So they don't match. Well, what now? Exhumation. Dr. Perry needed to see the body. Dr. Perry couldn't give an opinion as to the cause of death without a second autopsy, if then, and there would be no soft tissue injuries after 32 years. Linda and Clay were simply devastated. And if they needed to do a second autopsy, they needed to speak to the family. At the Trope County Administration Building, they all gathered feeling apprehension. Clay had broken the first rule of investigation, never become emotionally involved in a case. When this all began, Leslie Power, Alan Moore, and the rest of the family had embraced Clay, welcoming him in, making him one of them. Clay couldn't help shouldering some of the baggage, the outrage, the feelings of injustice and anger. Handing them a disappointment would be like betraying them now. He began to explain the progress thus far and why a second autopsy was necessary. Miss Pat took it all in and then she spoke, saying she knew, quote, God had not led us this far for us and Gwendolyn to be let down, end quote, and the family backed her up. Getting a court order for the exhumation was a go. To say the next week and a half was unbearable for me does not paint the proper picture, writes Clay. He well knew that if word got out, half the town would be gawking at the grave site. Thus, the information was kept on a need-to-know basis only. With help from the local coroner, Jeff Cook, and Sheriff Donnie Turner providing support, it went off without a hitch. At the morgue, Dr. Sperry introduced Dr. Rick Snow, an anthropologist, who would be assisting him on the autopsy. Everyone glanced into the casket on the gurney, and it was time. Opening the lid, there was a layer of sludge, and beneath, the bones of Gwendolyn Moore. Tannic acid is created by the decomposition of grass clippings in a well-maintained cemetery, which filters down into the vault and then into the casket. Dye from the tannic acid comes in contact with the bones, which had turned black. It looked like a reverse negative. Dr. Spurry began immediately dictating his observations, taking photographs, and conferring with Dr. Snow. Linda and Clay stood at attention at the far wall at the foot of the coffin. Time began to pass so slowly. The skull was in two pieces. The main portion and cap removed during the first autopsy. There were no fracture lines. A knot grew in Clay's stomach. Quote, her nose has been broken more times than I can count. She has a tremendous amount of facial trauma at different times. This, however, is not evidence of an injury that I can conclusively say caused her death. Clay wanted to slide down the wall feeling defeated. Unable to speak, lest he begin to cry. The doctors continued work, cleaning, reassembling, their voices and instruments droning on. And then, with a puzzled tone, Dr. Sperry said, quote, This is provocative, End quote. picking up a small bony structure and holding it up to the light. Provocative? Like, what does that mean? Provocative. Time ticked by, and the waiting was excruciating. What felt like months later, Dr. Sperry turned his attention to Linda and Clay. Quote, it's not provocative, it's murder, end quote. Blink, blink, blink. And he explained, quote, the hyoid bone is bilaterally fractured. Mrs. Moore died of a violent manual strangulation. Her life ended at the time of this injury. She was more likely dead before she was ever placed in that well, end quote. Miss Pat was right, was Clay's first sensible thought. God had not brought us this far to let us suffer defeat. Linda and Clay jumped up, raising hands in relief, joyously high-fiving, tears running down their cheeks as Linda exclaimed, we got him, we got him, Clay, we got him. They had seized a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to right a wrong of the highest order, and with dedication and hard work, they had achieved the nigh impossible. Buddy Bryant was smiling from heaven. D.A. Pete Scandalakis was beyond thrilled. The office medical examiner's report now read, quote, cause of death, manual strangulation, manner of death, homicide, End quote. After reviewing the case again, he had decided to forego a grand jury and Marshall Moore was arrested and put in jail on June 5, 2003. He hired Bill Stemberger to represent him, an excellent attorney and decent man who would provide his client the best defense as our system demands. And Marshall was released on a $50,000 bond. After Stemberger studied the state's case on discovery, He filed a motion to bar trial on the grounds that Marshall had been denied a speedy trial under the Sixth Amendment. Judge Quillian Baldwin ruled that the case was crystal clear. A speedy trial attaches to the time of the accusation, arrest, and indictment, which didn't occur until June 2, 2003. Motion denied. The trial would stand. Of course, Marshall was entitled to appeal the denial. First to the Georgia Supreme Court, and then the U.S. Supreme Court. Twiddling, time would roll by, which was exactly what Stemberger's strategy was. Postpone, postpone, postpone. Life does not stand still, and so while the stall dragged on, Linda Caldwell, a prosecutor who is totally dedicated to victims' rights, broke the news. Her husband had accepted a job as chief of police in Glenville, Georgia. Linda was leaving. Happy for their success, Clay felt the blow. Breaking in a new prosecutor who hadn't been through what he and Linda had together, well, it was anxiety-producing at the minimum. Linda's final act was to write the prosecution's brief to the Georgia State Court in the State versus Marshall Moore. Quote, it was superbly written, passionate, concise, and based on sound case law, end quote, and it was presented on March 24th, 2004. The court elected not to hear oral arguments, relying on the opposing brief as sufficient information to make a ruling. To Clay, it seemed highly unlikely that the court would set aside two centuries of American constitutional case law, and they did not. Paraphrasing Clay Bryant. While closure can be a virtuous goal, life is not about finality and secession associated with endings. Life is about finding the strength and bravery to continue and make new beginnings. But sometimes that sense of closure helps define the difference between the two. They were one step further down the road to justice for Gwendolyn, while Alan Moore, Miss Pat, and the others were trapped in guilt, regrets, anger, and pain, but could see a new beginning coming. The case would now shift to the immeasurably capable hands of Peter J. Skindelakis, district attorney himself. All right, so if you haven't noticed, Clay's dad has a saying for every possibility in the human condition. And I adore each and every one of them as corny and cliche as Clay says they are. But this one hit home, quote, son, there are times when things are just beyond your control. And in spite of your best plans and intentions, the deal gets screwed up and the trial ends up wagging the dog and there's not a thing you can do about it, end quote. And we all know this is true. It's frustrating and it's annoying. And it's even infuriating, but we do not get everything we want in life. Clay expressed his belief in our society as being governed by good people who try to do the right things. Our system tries to apply justice through a lens of kindness and compassion. The sticky wicket in this philosophy is when we endeavor to apply these virtues to our brethren who are ignorant of what their meaning is. We're so utterly callous that they hold zero value for them. The absence of conscience enables them to exploit all that is right and good in our system and use it against us. And our most sincere beliefs can be weaponized. And the tail ends up wagging the dog. Why share all this? Am I rambling? Well, there's a point. Marshall Moore really hired the right attorney in Bill Stemberger. Hired right before his arrest, and Marshall surrendered himself to the Troop County Jail, even as Stemberger notified the jail that Moore was receiving chemo for throat cancer, and he needed to be out of jail to continue with his treatment. He had had cancerous polyps in his throats before, and now it had reoccurred, although he was in decent physical condition. D.A. Pete isn't a hard nosed, uncaring individual so he agreed to let Moore out on this special bond so he could be treated. So that's why he's out on bail if you're wondering why on earth a suspect accused of such a violent, horrible murder wasn't in jail. But then the stall strategy kicked in. Stemberger entered a not guilty plea at the arraignment and filed a motion to bar trial, and Judge Baldwin denied this motion, which was the plan because any motion rooted in constitutional grounds denied by a trial judge in a capital case automatically triggers an appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. Taking care of all this, a new trial was set for November in 2004. Stemberger then filed for continuance because while Moore's cancer was in remission, an abdominal aneurysm had been discovered During a post-treatment CAT scan. And his surgery to correct the aneurysm was conveniently scheduled for January 4th, right smack before the beginning of the next term of the court. Oh no, so he had to get another continuance for the February term to allow more time to recuperate before trial. Okay, fine. Well, Clay was curious to know how Moore's surgery went. So on January 19th, he called the doctor's office. The number had been provided by the defense attorney. And on the day he was to report for pre-op, Marshall informed his doctor that he was seeking other treatment options. He did what? Livid. Clay went ranting into Pete's office, furious at being lied to and used this way when trying to do the decent thing and let the guy get his surgery. Pete told him to calm down, calm down, calm down. And he called Stemberger. Why had they not been informed that Marshall hadn't had his surgery? Oh, Stemberger said. He forgot. All right, so they now had to place State vs. Moore on the next trial calendar, with Stemberger showing up, but not Marshall. Now he was actually having the surgery. Wag the dog. Do you see now? There is nothing to do about it, but have the grace to accept we can't control everything. It was Judge Keeble on this go-round who glared daggers at Bill Stenberger, demanding documentation. If this guy wasn't in surgery, he was to be in court. Was that clear? But sure enough, the surgery that Marshall desperately needed last November occurred right before his court date in March and he now needed 68 weeks' recovery time. Some folks in the court actually snickered at this. Clay said, quote, Stemberger expressed outrage that the genuineness of his poor client's condition would be an inquisition. To me and to Gwendolyn's loved ones, it was the same song, second, third, fourth, and fifth verse, end quote. Spot on, Clay. At every delay, Clay would visualize Gwendolyn's poor broken body, hearing her murdering husband saying she was nothing but a sorry drunk. He didn't give a rat's ass about Marshall's medical condition and hoped God would forgive him for that one. Well, I do. I feel the same way. He needs to be held accountable, and the tail wagging the dog made everyone sick at heart. In May 2005, A more family member called Clay. With no more shenanigans left, Marshall recognized he couldn't avoid his day in court any longer, and it seemed to the family that he decided he'd rather die out of prison than in prison, and Marshall stopped eating. He was rapidly declining, going in and out of the hospital. During one of these visits, a young woman was treating him, and he said to her in a raspy voice, Ain't you scared of me? They call me the boogeyman, you know, end quote. having no idea who he was or what he was accused of, the nurse went about her business, saying, quote, Why would they call you that, Mr Moore? End quote. With a blank expression and staring off, he said quote, for killing my first wife, end quote. Suddenly the young woman realized who he was, which was why she called Clay and told him this story. Clay reflects that he was profoundly honored to be raised by parents who, quote, although not without faults of their own, imposed upon me basic principles that a man must answer for his actions. It may not be today or even tomorrow, but eventually a day of reckoning will come, end quote. On July 6, 2005, Marshall Moore died of pneumonia and malnutrition without ever having to defend himself against the charges he murdered his wife. Clay and I both believe that he has been held accountable for his deeds, unable to delay before that final court of judgment, and Gwendolyn has received justice denied to her on earth. Clay's mother, Doris Bryant, is remembered by Clay as being a stellar mom. A lesson learned from Doris came from a simple prayer, and perhaps you've heard it. The serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Clay Bryant has had the courage to change what he could, and he did. He writes that if he could speak with Gwendolyn today, he'd share the words of Jesus Christ, often spoken by Dr. Martin Luther King, the truth shall set you free. Her cries from the well were heard is perhaps not all we wanted as a final outcome, but this isn't about us. The truth was brought from the dark recesses of a well, strewn with trash, into the bright light of a courtroom, and Gwendolyn's voice was heard, and this is what matters most. I'd have liked to have seen the trial and heard Dr. Sperry explaining the death certificate of Dr. Krafka, the second autopsy result, and what a broken hyoid bone means, manual strangulation. I'd love to have heard Alan Moore say aloud the events of that night, seared into his brain for 30 plus years. Daddy killed Mama. He beat her. He abused us kids. I helped hide her from him. And I pray he has found absolution for the guilt he has carried, which is not his at all. Clay still strives to become a better man, to be a good and decent, forthright and justice-seeking, and strives to be like his daddy. During the two years of waiting for Marshall to be judged, Clay wasn't idling around frustrated. Pete Scandalakis allowed Clay to look into another case that had languished for 14 years, stone cold. Back in the 1990s, a young man was beaten and left to die by the side of the road. This reminds me a little bit of the Stephen Smith case being investigated by SLED right now that may or may not have something to do with Alex Murdaugh and the Murdaugh's. Who knows, right? With fresh eyes on this case, by the summer of 2004, the drug dealers who had killed the young man over a $200 debt was in jail, facing a life sentence for their brutality. Another case Clay solved was a young Laotian woman who disappeared in late 1987. Her body had been tied to a tree, where she endured being tortured to death two years after she disappeared. Through his investigation, he would discover that this barbarian had assaulted and raped others before and after her murder and was walking freely in society. By June 2005, this guy was in jail too. It was that verse his mama told him, the serenity prayer, that helps Clay find peace in his life, especially in the professional arena. It is his ability to hear the voices of the victims that fuels his perseverance to see justice done. And it's clear to me that Clay's superpower is tackling these cold cases. And we are not done. Clay Bryant's new book is The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling The Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. You really need to read both of these books. The second title is intriguing, The Black Widow's Web. Not a great reputation. That spider is frightening, along with those hairy brown recluse ones. Ooh, yeah. Black widows and their red hourglasses on their butts are common to see in Southeast U.S. and their bite is extremely painful and it can be fatal reclusive, lying in dark recesses, and spinning a web to trap its prey. Once drawn in, the Black Widow mates with the male, dominates him, kills him, and if that wasn't enough, devours him. Mm. Now, meet Connie King Quedens, who, quote, spun web lies and deceit, fueled by materialistic greed. Connie had no qualms whatsoever, in using any means she felt necessary to achieve her desires. End quote. So I think we found our black widow. Wait till you hear this one. Clay writes that 48-year-old Fred Wilkerson was the perfect victim for her scheme. Married, father of two, Tim and Tracy, a hardworking man, decent, trusting guy. Fred hated conflict and would avoid it at all costs. It was this mild disposition that contributed to him losing his job, family, possessions, and even his life being drawn into the spider's web. His daughter, Tracy, writes in the foreword of the book and explains that her family was the cliche middle-class family. Her mom, Carolyn, was a secretary at a local company, and her dad worked for a distribution company. The eldest, her brother Tim, was four years younger. She grew up in a safe, stable family with all kinds of activities. Her dad was a huge supporter of Tim's love of baseball and scouting. He was involved with both children and a true family man. And then all that changed, with a 22-year marriage dissolving when Tim was 15 and Tracy 19. This book tells the story of Clay's investigation There are plenty of red mountains along the way if one is willing to see. Punctual, Fred was never late or absent from his job. That last day, he and son Tim were anticipating their trip to Tennessee. Getting home, he saw Fred's suitcases were laid out, ready for their departure in the early morning. Their plan, leave the fast food merchandiser's warehouse where Fred had worked for years at 5 a.m., and drive to their first unloading appointment. Keeping to the schedule of drops was critical. And then the wait began. It was 3 a.m., it was 4 a.m., Tim was getting concerned. His dad would never leave without him, so he couldn't figure out what was going on. And a bad feeling began to grow in the pit of his stomach. 5 a.m. came and went, and Tim was frantic. He went to the warehouse and he found Fred's loaded truck sitting behind the gate, but no Fred. Beyond worried, Tim called Tracy. Was Dad with her? Had she heard anything? But Tracy knew nothing either. Debate ensued, and a few hours later, they notified the Troop County Sheriff's office, who we are very familiar with now, to report a missing person. And while this does not happen today, they were told they had to wait 48 hours to report it. Stressing, concerned, family and friends felt his absence and feared he'd met with foul play as they waited for any sign of Fred. But it didn't happen. Tim was back at the sheriff's office, this time successfully filing the missing person report. The family and friends organized searches, distributed missing flyers all over west central Georgia and eastern Alabama. This search for Fred would take 17 long years. And there is a map on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com, so you can get an idea of where we are in the world. Prior to Fred working at fast food merchandisers, Fred had gotten involved with a woman that he worked with at a different company. This resulted in him and Carolyn divorcing. He now invested all his money buying three acres of land and building a home that he expected would be their marital home where he'd spent his days with his new wife. But it didn't exactly work out that way as he fell into the Black Widow's web. The calendar flipped one year into the next and no credible word on what happened to Fred Wilkerson developed. Once in a blue moon, there would be a sighting, but it never panned out, raising hopes to be dashed. Clay observed that he had occasion to cross paths with individuals For whatever kink in the psyche, just have to involve themselves in a serious investigation, regardless of the damage that their misinformation does. Sometimes people theorize on what happened, which becomes a deeply rooted fact in their minds. Oh, we see this on social media all the time. And this is what can happen to law enforcement as well. And it can really derail an investigation. Another bit of wisdom Buddy Bryant imparted. quote, Son, I know you are highly intelligent and you are sure you've got this thing figured out and you have a theory of exactly what and how this happened. Problem is, you are now in danger of seeking evidence to support your theory instead of objectively seeking evidence to carry you to the truth. Never fall into that trap, end quote. Oh, I wish Buddy Bryant had advised Boulder, Colorado, PD, but I digress. Okay, in solving a huge number of cult cases as he has, Clay recognized that many investigations became ensnared by this dilemma. The willful blindness that took over not only hamstringed the actual resolution, but also could result in false suspicion placed on the wrong parties altering the lives of innocent persons. And we saw that in my trilogy on Bone Deep. But Clay isn't immune. Luckily, he has his father's voice in his head still guiding him. And it became clear to Clay that this initial investigation into Fred Wilkerson's disappearance was stuck in that trap. Also relevant to this particular case was a discussion between Buddy and Clay on toxic relationships. Okay, do not drink anything right now. And if you're driving, hold on tight, okay? Buddy Bryan's wisdom on love. Quote, son, love isn't but a dewdrop from heaven. The problem is it had just as soon fall on a horse turd as a geranium. End quote. Oh my God, I love that. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. So this is a perfect descriptor of Fred Wilkerson's relationship with his mistress, Connie King Quedens, who is definitely not a geranium. Now, back to misinformation. There were reports of Fred's sightings, some that he was right across the border in Alabama. Others saw him in Las Vegas coming off an elevator. Doing their jobs. Video footage from the hotel in Las Vegas was obtained, and Fred's doppelganger appeared, a man who greatly resembled Fred, but was not him. Well meant by the man who knew Fred, these sightings use resources and contribute to the investigation losing focus, but you have to check it out. This made the uncertainty, the not knowing of what happened, all the more unbearable for Fred's loved ones, however. With the investigation going cooler and cooler, the authorities monitored Fred's Social Security account in case he took a job elsewhere, which didn't happen. This case was replete with disinformation, strong opinions, and incorrect theories, extending this nightmare for 17 years. What forces and influence brought Fred to this place? Well, during the Great Depression, Begun after the dramatic collapse of the U.S. stock market, among other factors, was when Fred's parents, Alma and Zelmer Wilkerson, married. Like most people, they struggled to raise their family on their farm in Randolph County, Alabama. Given the red, rocky soil, Zelmer found work as a carpenter and in construction to supplement their income. When he was off working, Alma ran the farm and the children. The first child was a girl named Jewel. Nine years later, Fred Wilkerson was born to an elated Jewel, who took her place as co-mother to her little brother as they developed a tremendous bond that lasted for life. Jewel took a fancy to neighbor, Durrell Sanders. Leaving high school in her junior year, Durrell went on to graduate. In 1950, the couple were married. With limited prospects in Randolph County, the couple moved to LaGrange. The groom took a job at the Piston Ring and Supply, a very successful auto parts business. While Fred kept working on the family farm, he was a regular visitor at Jules and Durl's. He became an uncle when Sharon Sanders was born in 1952, followed by Jane in 1956, with Fred playing more big brother than uncle. When Fred graduated, he moved in with his sister and brother-in-law, knowing that job opportunities were far better in LaGrange. Sure enough, Fred began working for a cigar business as a salesman. One store, not far from where he lived, was a Yellow Jacket service station owned by Jack Lee, who just happened to have a winsome daughter, Caroline. Romance blossomed and the young couple were married May 1st, 1961, and you know that they go on to have two children, Tim and Tracy. Well, it isn't a perfect marriage, but it was pretty darn decent and they raised their kids in a loving home, and Fred was a good father until Connie Quedens appeared on the scene, taking advantage of his Achilles heel, which was to avoid conflict or controversy, especially involving women. So we've mentioned Connie Quedens a few times now, and not in a particularly flattering light. Born in West Virginia in 1945, Connie grew up in terrible poverty. Daughter of Wirt Hansforth King and Ora Marcel Dobbinsbrook King. All right, so these names are something else for this East Coast girl. I'm doing my best here. Um, Wirt was a coal miner, and life in Appalachia was meager. Shoveling coal for the Elk River coal mine in Wyden, West Virginia, the conditions the Kings lived in was deplorable. Forced to buy provisions at the company's store, they remained in debt while trying to grow some meager crops. Children's clothes were handmade. Shoes were only worn in winter. All right, so a fun fact. According to the Appalachian Regional Commission, Appalachian poverty declined 2.2% between 2012 and 2016, and then again between 2017 and 2021. However, the rate stagnated or increased in 77 other counties. Poverty among both children and young adults fell noticeably in 2012 and 2016. Child poverty dropping 4%. So there is progress today, but it should still give you a little sense on how Connie King grew up back in the 1950s and 60s. She did not have the amenities afforded to kids from less impoverished areas. And Clay and I agree that this led her to have a fixation for acquiring material possession and to assume control of, well, everything. As she became a teen, she made plans to raise heaven and earth to leave the coal mines behind her, and a vehicle for change was a young man named Gary Quedens, who was studying engineering at the University of West Virginia. Bright, ambitious, a guy who loved race cars, Gary was working and putting himself through school. He and Connie were married on April 6, 1963, and not long later, Gary finished his degree in industrial engineering. He had befriended a local mechanic named Bob Hullerman. Bob's wife, Joan, would later say that Connie constantly attempted to insert herself into their personal lives, seeking out Bob's company whenever Joan wasn't around. Bob was aware of what Connie was up to, how awkward, and refused to put himself in the position of ruining his friendship with Gary. Connie began attending a local community college. And soon, her wandering eye alighted on a local attorney, who would later get in trouble on federal racketeering charges. She seems to have had a wandering eye while she was at the community college, even though she's married to Gary. In 1978, while working as a bookkeeper for the city of Fairmont, Connie was accused of felony theft, ordering tires and billing them to the water and sewers board while using them personally. In May 1980, she pled guilty and was sentenced from one to five years in prison, but her sentence was suspended upon restitution, so she paid for the tires and did two years of an uneventful probation. In 1983, Gary took a job in Lagrange, Georgia, as an industrial engineer, buying a lovely home near West Point Lake. This was a bright chance for a fresh start for the Queens. Little did he understand, Connie would continue to spin her web in trapping her prey. Now, Clay waxes philosophically, which I just greatly appreciate. Some people are driven to help others, to go out of their way to see situations improve, even to their own detriment. Often, this can happen when they get involved in community causes. Not being on committees and doing good is a bad thing but occasionally it can go sideways, especially if someone is in public safety. And wouldn't you know it, Fred Wilkerson is a guy who would give you the shirt off his back. He was chief of the Troop County Wear Crossroad Volunteer Fire Department, and he coached his son's Little League baseball team. If you needed help, you could count on Fred. Carolyn Wilkerson was devoted to her family, but was not in need of saving. This is a strong and independent woman. She didn't make great demands on Fred, and they raised their kids in their middle-class home, and they had a good life. Connie Quedens began working at the office of Gusto Brands, a local beverage distributor, where Fred had been a warehouse manager for quite a number of years. And soon Connie learned that Fred was a good listener. As she spun her tale of woe, her husband mistreated her, she was neglected, Quote, Over the next several months, their relationship grew in the direction when Connie steered it. Connie used Fred's personality and character to ensnare him in a relationship that would eventually cost him everything. End quote, writes Clay, she began innocently asking Fred to come to her house to help out with lawn work that her husband refused to do, and then she needed a handyman. Could he help out again? And there was always some drama that required Fred to swoop in and save Connie from disaster. And ever the concerned guy willing to help out, Fred answered the call, being totally sucked in. Connie would exaggerate, making it appear that she was constantly in peril, when in fact, she is conjuring some scheme driven by greed and lust for control, reeling in Fred Wilkerson. I was shouting at the book Fred, Red Mountain, see what she's doing. Open your eyes. As we saw in the She Married a Green River Killer series, serendipity plays a role as situations and events arise, and we shock them off sometimes. Clay explains that this is just God's plan unfolding in mysterious ways in its own time. Now, by 2003, Fred Wilkerson was missing almost 18 years. His memory existed within his family and a few personal friends, and this was just another painful cold case. Now adults, Tim and Tracy resigned themselves to never knowing what had happened to their dad. It was a plan for self-preservation, and they just moved on with their lives. That summer of 2003 was a hot one with expected afternoon thunderstorms. In August, however, a particularly strong storm blew in with crazy winds and torrential rains and flooding. Trees were blown over, power lines went out, homes and businesses were damaged. And looking back, Clay recognizes that this was an act of divine intervention. A chain of inexplicable events was begun. Serendipity. One of those big Georgia pine trees fell over and crushed a brand new bright red fire truck, that belonged to Coetta Circuit District Attorney, you guessed it, Pete Scandalakis. I, I didn't know that people owned fire trucks, but oh righty there. Anyway, the next morning, Pete came in, quote, with that look of having lost his last friend and told the story of how his new prized possession had been reduced to a pickup pancake, end quote. Oh, I'm visualizing this one, the poor man. Trying to make Pete feel better, Clay volunteered to take what remained of the truck to the West Georgia paint and body, owned by Tim Wilkerson. Clay called Tim, and they set out to Pete's to see if the truck could be moved. Workers had removed the huge tree, and the men could see the broken windshield and windows, the roof caved in, and the body crushed. Tim thought that this new fire convertible could be moved to his shop. There, Tim promised he would deal with insurance and not to worry, and the men began chatting. And Clay mentioned that he'd just closed a 32-year-old cold case, Gwendolyn Moore case. And Tim waxed, gee, he wished there was a chance his dad's case could be reviewed, because he knew of some leads that hadn't been followed up on. Wait, what? Ears perking up, Clay could see the lost painful futility in Tim's eyes. Later, he would ask Pete if he might dig into the Wilkerson case. Pete told him to go for it. Quote, One thing was for sure. If there was validity to his sense that some stones had been left unturned, I was going to do my best to roll them over and see what might be underneath. End quote. Reflected Clay in that moment. Now, Tim and Tracy possessed tons of records and notes that they thought might be beneficial to Clay's new investigation and they gave them over to him. Voice echoing the years of pain, Tim told Clay, quote, there's no way my dad just up and left us without a word. He never missed my ball games, Tracy's recitals, anything he had, he was always there for us. He wasn't just my dad. He was my best friend, End quote. Knowing nothing about the case, Clay listened and listened. And according to Fred's kids, All of this tied back to Fred's relationship with Connie Queens. Armed with a list of friends, co-workers, and associates, Clay set out to get to know Fred, and there was a lot of dialing involved as people used landlines in these days gone by. Up first, very good friends of the young married couple Fred and Carolyn were Raymond and Gerald Vaughn, who were all raising kids together. Clay knew Raymond to be a straightforward guy. And he wasted no time telling Clay that he need to look no further than Connie Quedens if he was trying to figure out what happened to Fred. Raymond was also pessimistic that this was solvable. But Buddy Bryant's sage words came back, quote, son, you'll miss every shot you never take, end quote. And Clay felt in his heart that Fred deserved one more shot. But the Fred Wilkerson case was missing a few components. An act, a victim, a crime scene, evidence, and suspects- I mean, how hard could this be, right? Clay knew that he'd have to delve deep and listen with great care. theory that Fred had a loving Thanksgiving dinner and then rode off into the sunset seemed absurd to Clay, me too, actually, after meeting with the family co-workers, employers, friends, Clay was convinced that there was quote, no way in hell Fred Wilkerson had abandoned his family leaving them to suffer the torture of living with the unknown, end quote. No one had suggested Fred elected to walk away and start anew. Perhaps he wasn't the ideal husband, but he was one terrific father. Therefore, if Fred had not just gone off to begin again, he must have met some unfortunate situation. And everyone agreed that the, air quote, situation was Connie Quedon's. December 1st, 1987. Connie and her attorney, Jack Kirby met for her interview by the Troop County Sheriff's Office. She flatly refused to take a polygraph and was questioned about her financial involvement with Fred and the details of their relationship. She denied that there was any romantic relationship, although he and his son had resided in her home with her for several months before she demanded that they leave on Labor Day, 1987. Connie was told that Tim Wilkerson said his father had lived upstairs with her while he resided in the basement. Yes, she affirmed that that had happened. But Tim insisted it was a romantic relationship and had been for a substantial period of time. In fact, Fred was acting on a long-term plan preparing for life with Connie. And the more Connie demanded, the more Fred felt over himself to meet those demands. He wanted to please her, and Connie exploited this to the max. Quote, it was his inability to resist her iron will that would lead to his hopeless entanglement in the Black Widow's web. End quote. Going through the records amassed by the Wilkerson children was quite impressive. They chronicled the financial and real estate transactions that Connie and Fred had been involved in, They had photographs of Connie and Fred at family gatherings, which was evidence that Fred was much more than her landscaper. Documents laid out the construction of the house and the land that Fred purchased, vendors, construction records, subcontractors, and the like, which might hint at a motive. But there was no direct evidence that tied Connie to Fred's disappearance. They shared information about other people who had relationships with Connie prior to Fred where she had been violent towards anyone who resisted her demands. Clay heard of an incident from 1995 where Connie had filed to have Fred declared dead. Baffled, Clay couldn't imagine why that hadn't been followed up on, but it hadn't. And it's only when Clay went and spoke to the people involved in this that he realized this could shatter the logjam that had prevented progress in this case. And that is where I'm going to stop for now. There are so many dangly threads here. I know. But when we get to our next episode in two weeks, all's well that ends well, you are going to see a 17-year cold case melt and the truth be revealed. And I can't wait for you to find out what happens next. I'll be interviewing Clay Bryant himself because I have a million questions to ask him. And I bet you do too. So send me those questions at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for bearing with the threads that are dangling. And right now I need you to do me a huge favor. Can you leave a five-star review wherever you are listening right now? It helps new murder bookies find the podcast. And as always, I am so appreciative of your support, whether it's emails, or doing reviews, or joining Patreon, I can't do this alone. Reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I love hearing from you. Subscribe so my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, trust your gut. I see you as you hear me. Source material, snack, and drink information for the Clay Bryant Book Trilogy is found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hossena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.